Welcome back to class, everyone. In this class, we're going to do a brief review of the GI tract anatomy and physiology. We're going to primarily focus on the lower GI tract. Um, that's the area responsible for conversion of liquid to solid stool and for storage and elimination of stool. But we're going to quickly go through the entire GI tract. So, as you already know, the GI tract can be divided into the alimentary canal and then the accessory organs. And the alimentary canal, of course, is that long tube that processes food, forms stool, eliminates waste. So it starts at the mouth, ends at the anus. Then your accessory organs are all of the organs that contribute to intake, digestion, and absorption of nutrients but are not part of the canal. So that's your teeth, your tongue, your salivary glands, the liver, the pancreas, that kind of thing. <clears throat> what does the GI tract do for us? We all know. Plays two critical roles. The first one is essential to life, ingestion, digestion, and absorption of nutrients. That's the responsibility of the upper GI tract, the mouth, esophagus, stomach, and small bowel. Storage and elimination of waste products is the responsibility of the colon and the rectum. That is not absolutely essential to life. Some of our patients have fecal diversions and they do well, but it's certainly a nice component to have. Now, if we look at GI histology, the four layers of the bowel wall are very similar throughout the alimentary canal. In this class, we're going to focus primarily on the muscle layers, but we're going to go briefly through all of them. So if we look at the outermost layer of the bowel, it's the serosa. And the serosa, as you see, is continuous with the mesentery. The serosa has no capacity for mucus secretion. And we know this on some level because we were all taught in nursing school that if we had a patient who had incisional evisceration, so if the incision just totally fell apart and exposed loops of bowel, we were taught the critical importance of covering those loops of bowel with towels moistened with sterile saline. And the whole point of that is to keep those loops of bowel moist because the serosal layer has no mucus secreting glands of tremendous relevance on an ongoing basis in clinical practice. When we have patients who have GI disorders that cause transmural inflammation, meaning inflammation of all layers of the bowel wall, like Crohn's disease, those patients frequently complain of significant abdominal pain. When you think about what transmural inflammation means, that makes sense. It means that the mucosal submucosal, muscle, and serosal layers are all part of the inflammatory process. The serosal layer is continuous with the mesentery. That becomes part of the inflammatory process. So you end up with a low-grade non-bacterial peritonitis. Now the muscle layers are of critical importance when we start talking about continence because it's the muscle layers that control motility. And bowel motility is a very important factor in normal function and continence and in abnormal states and incontinence. So we have two major muscle layers in the bowel wall. We have the outer longitudinal muscle layer and then the inner circular muscle layer. Because you have those two muscle layers, you get different kinds of motility. So you can get a back and forth action that helps to mix ingredients together. And that supports digestion and absorption of nutrients because it mixes the food and the nutrients with the enzymatic fluid. You also get peristaltic activity. So with peristaltic activity, this section contracts, this section relaxes, then this section contracts, this section relaxes, and you actually move the mass of fluid along the length of the bowel. Now obviously, muscle function is totally dependent on normal nerve function, nerve supply and nerve function. And we have many nerve plexuses, and you can see it on this slide. 
So we have nerve plexuses located between the serosal layer and the longitudinal muscle, between the two muscle layers, and between the circular muscle and the submucosa. So there's extensive innervation of the bowel wall, which assures normal motility. Now, a lot of times you'll read about the intrinsic nervous system, also known as the enteric nervous system, and the extrinsic nervous system. The intrinsic nervous system are the receptors and the nerve plexuses within the bowel wall. So at the mucosal layer, you have little nerve receptors that send messages back to the nerve plexuses within the bowel wall. The nerve receptors at the mucosal layer are particularly sensitive to stretch and to irritants. So whenever there's enough intestinal fluid, whenever there's enough stool to distend the bowel wall, you get activation of the nerve fibers that cause muscle function, that cause peristaltic activity. Also, those receptors are very sensitive to irritants. So you've probably all had the experience if you go to some little hole-in-the-wall restaurant, the food is great, probably the flavor comes at least in part from the unique blend of pathogens in their food. Nonetheless, it tastes great. The next day, you have diarrhea. What is that? Well, the irritants and the bacteria are now stimulating those little receptors at the mucosal layer, sending messages back to the nerve plexus that increases motility. So it's like the bowel saying, I don't know what that is, but we need to get it out of there. Now the extrinsic nervous system are the autonomic fibers. So the autonomic fibers feed in through the mesentery. So if you look at this slide on the top, you see mesentery, then artery, then nerve. So the autonomic nerve fibers feed in through the mesentery and then communicate with the nerve plexuses in the bowel wall. The autonomic fibers respond to systemic factors. So medications, stress, anesthesia, surgery. So your intrinsic nervous system responds to local factors like stretch and irritants. Your autonomic nervous system and those fibers respond to systemic factors like meds, anesthesia, surgery. We have already said several times sympathetic stimulation is going to slow the gut. It's going to slow the rate of peristalsis. It's also going to reduce the rate at which secretions are produced. Parasympathetic is the opposite. Under parasympathetic stimulation, you produce more saliva. You produce more intestinal fluid along the length of the bowel, and you increase peristaltic activity. Now, spinal cord injury has a profound impact on bowel function. It's not the first thing we think about when we're taking care of a patient with a spinal cord injury, but it is significant because you lose the effects of the autonomic nervous system. And remember, the autonomic nervous system responds to systemic factors. Fortunately, you retain the effects of the intrinsic or enteric nervous system, so the bowel can still respond to stretch, to mechanical distension, can still respond to irritants, but not very responsive to medications, not very responsive to systemic factors. Now, the last two layers are the two inner layers. That's the submucosal layer and the mucosal layer. The submucosal layer contains another nerve plexus, your large blood vessels, the interstitial cells of Cajol, which are important. Those cells act as pacemakers. They actually take messages from the nerve cells to the muscles. So when the nerve cells are activated by stretch or by irritants, then the ICCs, the interstitial cells of Cajol, take a message to the muscle layers that increase motility. And then the mucosal layers, the innermost layer, um, very rich blood supply, has its own mucus secreting glands, can keep itself moist. So we'll talk a lot about that layer under ostomy care. We're not going to spend that much time on it in continence care. Okay, so now we're going to start through the GI tract. 
We're not going to spend a lot of time on the upper structures. We'll just briefly review their role and then spend a lot more time on the colon and the rectum. So of course the tongue is important. It allows us to take in food, manipulate food. So it supports swallowing, it supports taste, and it supports speech. But within the realm of continence, we're not really going to focus on that. Your salivary glands produce 1,500 milliliters of saliva every day. That acts to lubricate foods and to promote swallowing. And you also have the enzyme amylase and saliva that begins digestion of starches. Again, not our focus. Teeth obviously help us to break down our nutrients, also important to speech. And oropharynx is where swallowing is initiated. Swallowing is a very complex phenomenon. It involves both striated voluntary muscles and smooth muscles. So swallowing starts out as a coordinated voluntary act, but about a third of the way down the esophagus, you lose voluntary control and the rest of it is managed by smooth muscle involuntary. So the esophagus takes nutrients from the mouth to the stomach. It's about 10 inches long. It's a skeletal muscle under voluntary control proximally. It's a smooth muscle distally, like we just said. You actually have two sphincters within the esophagus. One um, guards the junction between the mouth and the esophagus. That's the pharyngoesophageal. And the other guards the junction between the esophagus and the stomach, esophagogastric. So when you swallow, the pharyngoesophageal sphincter opens to allow food to pass through. Then it closes to prevent reflux into the mouth. As food reaches the distal esophagus, the esophagogastric opens so that it passes into the stomach and then it closes to prevent reflux into the esophagus. Now, gastroesophageal reflux disease, <coughs> normally that esophagogastric um, junction, that is not a sphincter as much as it is a high pressure zone, but it provides very good protection. So as long as that high pressure zone is functioning normally, the distal esophagus remains closed except during swallowing. And that closure protects the esophagus from reflux. But there are things that affect that high pressure zone, reduce the pressures, and allow that area of the esophagus to open partially. That includes very acidic foods. Um, it includes large volumes of alcohol. It includes hormones produced during pregnancy. So when we have patients who, get, who have GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, what's happening is that high pressure zone is not maintaining tight closure. It's allowing gastric contents to reflux back into the esophagus. The patient interprets this as heartburn. And of course, on endoscopy, we see inflammation, esophagitis. Now, fortunately, Within the esophagus, we have glands that secrete amphoteric mucus, and that means that this mucus can protect both against acids and against bases, which is a good thing because you never know what we're gonna put into our mouths, and the esophagus needs to be ready all the time to protect itself. Now, there's a very important structure known as the peritoneum. You, of course, know about this structure. You know it is the support structure for the bowel. You know that it's basically a tough membrane that provides innervation and blood supply to organs within the abdominal cavity and specifically to the intestine. The mesentery actually attaches the bowel to the posterior abdominal wall. And when we talk about ostomy care, we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. Now, the peritoneum can be divided into subcomponents. The parietal peritoneum is the portion that lines the abdominal cavity. The visceral peritoneum is the portion that literally wraps around the bowel and the other organs. The mesentery is probably the section that we talk the most about. It's actually a double fold of the peritoneum and it extends from the abdominal organs 
to the abdominal wall. And here you can see, so look at the bottom, so you clearly see the colon, and then you see that membrane that's attached to the colon, and you can see the blood vessels and the nerves running through the membrane and then supplying um, the bowel. The greater omentum is a double fold that hangs down over the stomach and it's filled with fat, so it's called the fatty apron. What's it there for? Well, actually it can play kind of a protective role and it can be used to repair traumatic injuries like a liver laceration or to reconstruct the pelvic floor. What about the stomach? Well, the stomach is very important um, to nutrient intake digestion and absorption and to our quality of life. It's about 10 inches long. It holds up to one or one and a half quarts. Has some features that protect us every single day. First of all, very, very low pH. It's an acid bath. So pH runs between one and three. That means whatever we swallow and we swallow a lot of organisms every day without even thinking about it but almost all of them are immediately killed by this very acidic pH. So it protects us against many GI infections. And you know that patients who, are on, who take antacids routinely or they take medications to reduce acid production, they're also higher risk for GI infections because they lose some of that acid bath protection. There are three layers of muscle in the stomach, so in addition to being able to squeeze things through the stomach, because of that third layer, it can actually exert a churning motion that helps to break down gastric contents. The mucosa is actually arranged in folds, known as rugae, that allows the stomach to expand and contract. The gastric glands produce two and a half quarts of fluid a day that very acidic fluid helps with nutrient digestion and absorption. There's multiple areas of the stomach. There's the fundus, the body, and the pylorus. The fundus is the most critical region and contains all of the essential um, components to normal digestion. What does the stomach do for us? Well, it's a reservoir and it has controlled emptying. So it allows us to eat at intervals. So you eat lunch, then gradually whatever you eat for lunch is broken down, converted to liquid, and transported to the small bowel. If we didn't have the stomach, we would have to eat almost continuously. So theoretically, it gives us the advantage of eating at intervals, although some of us pretty much eat continually anyway. The stomach also contributes to mechanical digestion through that churning effect, and it has very enzymatic enzymes, I mean very proteolytic enzymes. So those proteolytic enzymes are going to begin breakdown of proteins. Saliva has enzymes that begin breakdown of carbohydrates. The stomach has proteolytic enzymes that begin the breakdown of proteins. Now, one thing that's really important when you look at the stomach is it's got this very, very acidic fluid. What protects the stomach itself against that very acidic fluid? Well, you secrete a mucus blanket, that helps. The cells within the gastric wall, the lining of the stomach, have very tight junctions. So they're locked up tightly against each other so that it's very difficult for anything to penetrate. Also, we secrete prostaglandins. Prostaglandins help protect the gastric lining against damage from acidity. The tight junctions protect, the mucus blanket protects. So with normal function, you've got that highly acidic fluid to destroy any pathogens that are ingested, and yet the stomach wall itself is very well protected against damage. Now, one thing the stomach does that's very important is secretes the intrinsic factor. Intrinsic factor is the carrier substance for vitamin B12. So in order to absorb vitamin B12, you have to have intrinsic factor. Intrinsic factor connects with B12 and actually carries it across 
the mucosal uh, barrier into the bloodstream. The stomach's also responsible for limited absorption, so it absorbs water. It absorbs some carbohydrates, especially simple carbohydrates. Unfortunately, it absorbs alcohol, and if there's nothing else in your stomach, it absorbs it very quickly, and the stomach can absorb some drugs. How long does it take for food to move out of the stomach into the small bowel? It depends on what kind of food is there. Overall, the transit time ranges from about half an hour to five hours. Fluids move through more rapidly than solids, of course. Carbohydrates are broken down and move through much more rapidly. Fats and proteins actually slow gastric emptying. So that's an important thing to think about if you're trying to limit your food intake. You're trying to lose weight, you're trying to limit your food intake then you want to limit your carbohydrates. You want to increase your intake of proteins and some fats because proteins and fats slow gastric emptying and make you feel full longer. On the flip side, if I'm trying to help a patient get in more nutrients, I want to suggest possibly using nutrient supplements in liquid form. So ensure boost, that kind of thing because liquids process faster than solids, and I want to be sure that there's a significant um, element of carbohydrates because that's going to empty faster as well. Okay, so now we're to the small bowel. Across the board, the small bowel is one to one and a half inches in diameter, and you've got about 15 to 16 feet of small bowel. As you know, there's the three major sections. There are the, the duodenum, the jejunum, and the ileum. And when you look at the layers of the bowel wall, they're pretty much what we've already discussed. The serosa, the muscle layers, the submucosa, and the mucosa. One critical difference in the small bowel is that the mucosal layer is covered with villi. And villi are those projections, the mucosal projections, that tremendously increase the absorptive surface. Each villus, in turn, is covered with multiple microvilli. So when you take the villi and the microvilli together, the absorptive surface of the small bowel is phenomenal. The villi and the microvilli both contain both enzymes and the little carrier substances that promote nutrient digestion breakdown, and that connect with the nutrients and carry them across the barrier into the bloodstream. So villi, very important. The good news is if we have to remove a significant portion of the small bowel because of some disease process, the villi in the remaining small bowel can hypertrophy, so they can elongate. The microvilli can elongate so that the bowel partially compensates for loss of a segment. On the flip side, those villi that tremendously increase the absorptive surface, they can atrophy. So if we make this patient NPO for a period of time, seven days or longer, that happens a lot in the hospital, those villi become atrophic. Normal function of villi they have little uh, muscle fiber, they have all these enzymes, all these carrier substances. They're always swinging around looking for nutrients. But if nothing's coming down the line, nothing's being ingested, they get really tired of swinging around. So after a while, they sit down and then they lay down. And now you've got a marked reduction in the absorptive surface area. Now, when you start to feed this person again, everything tends to shoot through very quickly because the absorptive surface has been tremendously reduced. That's why we frequently see diarrhea in patients when we start them on tube feedings. But if we will just slow the rate and remain patient, the villi will get back up they're gonna to start to notice, hey, what was that? Was that food? They'll stand back up. So it's normal to see diarrhea in a patient who has been NPO and is then placed on, placed on enteral feedings. But within just a few days to a week, 
you're going to start seeing a reduction in the diarrhea and an increase in nutrient absorption. The entire small bowel, tremendously absorptive. The tallest villi, the greatest absorptive surface is found in the jejunum. 80% of our nutrients are actually absorbed in the first 100 centimeters of the small bowel. So the first 40 inches of the small bowel provides 80% of nutrient absorption. Lots of little intestinal glands throughout the small bowel. Altogether, they produce about three liters of enzyme-rich fluid every day. And another characteristic of the small bowel is that, again, you have very low bacterial counts. So you don't have much gas production in the small bowel, and stool from the small bowel has a lot less odor. Now looking at each segment very briefly, the duodenum, of course, is that C-shaped section that comes off of the stomach and wraps around the um, tail of the pancreas, the head of the pancreas. The ampulla of Vater is where the common bile duct and the pancreatic duct empty into the duodenum. So if you see the little green lines representing the common bile duct and the pancreatic duct, they empty into the duodenum. And that's important because the pancreatic fluid supports digestion of fats and bile is critical to digestion and absorption of fats. So if you think about it, you start breaking down starches in the mouth, you start breaking down protein in the stomach, and you start breaking down fat in the duodenum. The, um, the duodenum also contains Brunner glands. They produce a, um, this unique mucus to neutralize the acidity because everything's dumping out of the stomach into the duodenum. And think how acid everything is in the stomach. So you really need that extra protection um, in the duodenum. Now, what is the duodenum responsible for? Well, one of its biggest responsibilities is to neutralize the very acidic kind from the stomach. It does continue the process of digestion. It stimulates the pancreas to release digestive enzyme, stimulates the gallbladder to release bile and you get some absorption, especially of minerals, iron, calcium, magnesium, and then some carbohydrates. The jejunum, a critical element of the small bowel, nine feet long, one and a half inches wide, as we said, very prominent villi. And what's its major function? Nutrient absorption. The vast majority of our nutrients are absorbed in the jejunum, most of our carbohydrates, most of our fats, most of our proteins most of our vitamins. Think about the fact that if we have a patient who requires enteral feedings, and if we decide not to use a gastrostomy tube or a nasogastric tube, we place a jejunostomy tube. So we feed directly into the jejunum, which makes sense because that's the most absorptive area of the small bowel. What about the ileum? The ileum's about 12 feet long. It's about an inch in diameter. It also has tremendous absorptive capacity, but it always plays a backup role for the jejunum. The jejunum is always the lead, and the ileum just gets its leftovers. So every day it shows up to work. Every day it says to the jejunum, hey, I'm here. You know, I'm really good at absorption, and if you want to take a day off, I could handle all that nutrient absorption for you. Or if you just want to take a break, jejunum's like, no, I've got this. No, I've got this. But if anything ever happens to the jejunum, if we have to remove a section of jejunum, the ileum's there, and it can take over. Also, there's something unique about the last 100 centimeters of the ileum. It's known as the terminal ileum because it's the last section. It is the only site in the GI tract where intrinsic factor B12 complex can be absorbed. That means if we have to remove that section of ileum, your patient is going to lose the ability to absorb vitamin B12. They're going to be dependent on vitamin B12 supplementation for the rest of their lives. 
movement in the small bowel, two types, segmentation that's back and forth. Contract, 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 back and forth. Mix everything up, expose nutrients to the enzymatic fluid to support digestion and absorption. But then peristalsis is forward moving, moving things along the small bowel, through the small bowel into the colon. Now, in the small bowel, peristalsis is constant and it's pretty fast. So typically things move from the duodenum all the way through the ileum and into the colon in less than six hours. If it's primarily fluid or if it's primarily carbohydrates, it's probably gonna move through in two hours. Once again, as you know, sympathetic stimulation will slow things down a bit. Parasympathetic stimulation speeds things up. As a whole, the small bowel phenomenally absorptive. So think about this. Every day we take in about three liters between what we drink and what we eat. But the body itself produces seven to nine liters. So one and a half liters of saliva, two and a half liters of gastric fluid, three liters of small bowel fluid. It's pretty wet in there. But the vast majority of that fluid is reabsorbed in the small bowel. So all that fluid does what? It mixes with nutrients. It exposes nutrients to enzymes. So it supports the breakdown of our nutrients, the digestion of our nutrients. And then all that fluid also supports absorption of nutrients into the bloodstream. But with the absorption of nutrients, most of that fluid gets absorbed as well. So even though most of us have about 10 liters of fluid in the GI tract over the course of a day, the vast majority is reabsorbed back into the bloodstream. Only one to two liters typically passes through the ileocecal valve into the colon. We will talk more about this when we talk about um, small bowel ostomies, so you'll hear more about this in the ostomy course, but small bowel fluid has large volumes of sodium and potassium and bicarb and magnesium. So if we have abnormal losses from the small bowel, if we have severe diarrhea, if we have a fistula, if we have a small bowel stoma, those patients are high risk for dehydration and fluid electrolyte imbalance. Okay, so now we're to the colon, and this is our area of greatest interest. The colon is five feet long, one and a half to two inches wide. And there's distinct sections with distinct functions. So the first area is the ileocecal valve. And if you look at the slide on the bottom, you can see that little, almost like a little stoma protruding into the cecum. That is the ileocecal valve. And it is a one-way valve that controls passage of fluid from the small bowel into the colon. And it prevents backflow into the small bowel. Prevents backflow of fluid and also prevents backward migration of bacteria. So the ileocecal valve is really important in keeping the small bowel and the colon totally separate. That's good because the colon has large numbers of bacteria, small bowel has low numbers of bacteria, and the ileocecal valve helps maintain that status quo. It's particularly important in patients who have short bowel syndrome because first of all, it delays emptying from the small bowel into the colon, so it gives you more time for nutrient and fluid reabsorption. And also, because it keeps the bacteria out of the small bowel, it helps prevent any kind of malabsorption syndrome. The cecum is located just distal to the appendix. Um, that is the area that is actually most subject to massive distension and perforation. So occasionally we'll have patients who develop an obstructing malignancy in the sigmoid colon. Within the entire colon, proximal to that mass begins to distend. When you get to the cecum, things have nowhere else to go 
because the ileocecal valve is that one-way door, so you can't push things backward into the small bowel, what ends up happening is the cecum distends until it can't distend anymore and then perforates. So sometimes people with adenocarcinoma of the sigmoid that's caused obstruction at the level of the sigmoid, they present with cecal perforation that looks like appendicitis until we get in there. The colon itself is, designed, is divided into the ascending colon, runs up the right side, the transverse colon runs across the midline, the descending runs down the left side, the sigmoid colon, the S-shaped segment leading to the rectum. Then the rectum itself is about three inches long, three to four inches long typically. The anal canal is a little over an inch to inch and a half. Now, what about any anatomic differences in the bowel wall? Well, there is a big difference in the colon, and the big difference is there are no villi. So the colon does not contribute to nutrient absorption. The colon is very good at absorbing water and electrolytes, but it cannot absorb carbohydrates, fats, or proteins. The muscle layer is a little different in the colon, um, specifically the longitudinal muscle layer. So instead of being a solid sheath wrapped around the colon wall, the longitudinal muscle in the colon is gathered into three bands, and it's called the tinea coli. And those bands create those little puckers or gatherings in the colon wall known as haustrations that you see whenever you see a drawing of the colon. I'll point it out to you in just a minute. At the level of the rectum, then the bands coalesce and reform a continuous sheath. So look at the top slide again. So you see how the colon is always drawn. It shows it like it has these little compartments. And that's because the muscle bands are gathered into three layers that cause the bowel wall to pucker. And it literally does form little internal compartments that connect. So I've already said it um, plays an important role in water and electrolyte absorption. The colon also produces an alkaline mucus that's very important in protecting the bowel wall against bacterial toxins. Because remember, the colon has lots of bacteria, and those bacteria do produce toxins, but the mucus that's produced protects the colonic wall against those toxins. One of the most important things the colon does is it helps or it contributes to the synthesis of symbiotic compounds. And what are those? Those are protective substances that are produced by bacterial action on soluble and insoluble fiber. So you hear all the time about probiotics. And so you know, what are probiotics? They're the good flora. They're the good bacteria in the intestinal tract. Some we know the most about are lactobacillus and bifidobacteria. And what we know is that those good bacteria act on dietary fiber to form protective compounds that protect the mucosal layer of the bowel. So the fiber is just as important as the bacteria. They work together. That fiber is known as prebiotics. So if you ingest fiber, you've got your prebiotic. If you have normal bacterial balance in the colon, now you have your probiotics. The probiotics, the bacteria, act on the prebiotics, the fiber, to produce the protective compounds known as symbiotics. It's a lot of biotics there. So the types of symbiotics, sometimes you'll read specifically about short-chain fatty acids and how important they are to bowel wall health. Um, antioxidants, we know how important antioxidants are in protecting against oxidative stress injury. That's one type of symbiotics. Vitamins, so they produce vitamins. They produce growth factors. They produce clotting factors they produce signaling molecules that allow cells to communicate. So those protective compounds, essential to health. And it all goes back to normal bacterial balance 
and adequate intake of fiber. Specifically, those protective compounds as a group help to maintain the mucosal barrier, help to prevent bacterial invasion, help to maintain bacterial balance so that you don't get an overgrowth of pathogens like C. diff, reduce production of bacterial toxins and shield the bowel wall against those toxins, keep bacteria from sticking to the bowel wall as a pre-step to invasion, and improve macrophage function. So you can see they play a very critical role in keeping the bowel wall healthy, preventing bacterial invasion, preventing damage from bacteria, preventing oxidative stress damage. So what about externally administered probiotics? They're everywhere now. They're in every pharmacy, they're in every grocery store. Which one should you take? Should you take any of them? Should you get yogurt that has live cultures? We have a lot left to learn about probiotics. Increasingly, we're beginning to give probiotics prophylactically when we have to administer antibiotics with the goal of maintaining bacterial balance. But we're not at the point yet where we can say, this is how much you need on a daily basis. We're saying this is the supplement you should use. So you'll have to just stay tuned and see what we learn. What about motility in the colon? Well, once again, you have the mixing motions, the back and forth, and that exposes the stool to the mucosal lining of the colon. So it permits absorption of water and electrolytes and it helps convert liquid to solid. Peristalsis, we've talked about. So in the right colon, it's slow but continuous. And in my mind, I had this little guy with a push broom, and he's kind of gradually pushing the stool along, and he stops pretty often, and just stands and thinks. He's not in any hurry, definitely a type B, and he's like, okay, I'll work a little longer. Gradual continuous, slow. So you very gradually move stool from the right colon to the transverse colon. Now, that very slow propulsion of stool along the right side of the colon supports water and electrolyte reabsorption, supports the conversion of liquid to solid. So stool starts out liquid, on the right side, by the time it gets to the transverse colon, it's mushy to soft. The transverse colon is a temporary storage area. Stool will sit there until there's enough stool accumulated to stretch the colon wall and to trigger what we call mass movements, major peristaltic waves that rapidly sweep stool from the transverse colon to the rectum. So once, that once the colonic wall gets stretched, now you don't have gradual peristalsis, now you have rapid fire peristalsis, and it moves rapidly down the left side of the colon. Now, what triggers those mass movements? Well, colonic stretch is one. Eating is a very powerful stimulant. Caffeine is a stimulant. Activity is a stimulant parasympathetic stimulation is a stimulant. Most of us have mass movements once or twice a day, most commonly after breakfast. So think about this. You get up, you get up late. Your alarm didn't go off, whatever happened. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm late. You jump up, you rush to the shower, you throw in your clothes, you do something really quickly to your hair, you grab something to eat, grab a cup of coffee or tea or whatever and you hop in your car. Now, even if you stopped to consult with your rectum before you got in the car and you said, hey, anything going on? Anything I should take care of before I get in the car because I'm gonna be stuck there for about 45 minutes. Your rectum would be like, nope, nothing going on down here. 15, 20 minutes later, what happens? Oh my gosh, all of a sudden you really, really, really have to go. So you get this message that goes from the rectum to the cortex, major stool delivery, pull over. And you're like, I can't pull over, I'm in traffic. What has happened? 
activity, running around, getting dressed, hurrying out the door, eating, caffeine. Those three things together triggered mass movement. So the stool that was in your transverse colon is now in your rectum and this far from your underwear. And all the things that keep you continent are the things we're gonna talk about in just a minute. Now notice that the normal transit time from the cecum to the rectum is about 24 hours, but most of that time is spent transporting stool from the cecum to the transverse colon and waiting for the next series of mass movements, waiting for the next train out of there. Okay, so controlled elimination of stool is dependent in part on normal peristaltic activities so that you end up with soft-formed stool in the rectum. It is also dependent on normal sensory awareness. So if suddenly a large bolus of stool is delivered to your rectum, how quickly do you want to know? Can I let you know in five minutes, 10 minutes? No, you need to know immediately, right? You need instant notification. And that's exactly what you get. We have multiple stretch receptors in the rectal walls and the perirectal muscles. When, so when stool passes into the rectum and stretches the rectal walls, all of these sensory receptors go crazy, send messages to the cortex, major delivery to the rectum. So you have immediate conscious awareness. Now the other thing is that within just a few seconds, you're gonna know whether you've got solid, liquid, gas, or some combination. How does that happen? So the rectal walls stretch and the internal sphincter, we'll talk about that in just a minute, the internal sphincter opens briefly and rectal contents contact the skin and the anal canal. And it turns out that the skin and the anal canal is richly supplied with receptors whose major job in life, only job in life, is to sample rectal contents and give you a readout solid, liquid, you better run fast. It's only gas, right? Think about what happens. First you get the message that you've got to go and then in just a minute, you get a follow-up message that tells you what you've got. That's important to continence as well because many times a day, we have gas passing into the rectum. We don't necessarily have to rush off to the bathroom. We can think where we are, you know, who's there? Do I care? So is it safe to pass this gas here? Do I have to find a corner? What do I have to do? So I know I've got stool in my rectum. That does me no good unless I have normal sphincter function. So your sphincters allow you to close the anal canal, maintain anal canal closure, retain stool in the rectum until it's convenient to go to the bathroom. So you've got your internal anal sphincter, that's a condensation of the circular muscle fibers from the rectum. This is the, if you look at this slide, so the inner layer of muscle is the internal anal sphincter. It is not under voluntary control, it is a smooth muscle, it's controlled by the autonomic nervous system and the enteric nervous system. At rest, normal function, at rest, the internal anal sphincter is tight, it is closed, it is maintaining anal canal closure. In response to rectal distension, what happens? You get momentarily, momentary relaxation of the internal sphincter that opens the anal canal. It allows rectal contents to contact those nerve receptors in the anoderm. That gives you the readout as to whether you have gas, liquid, or solid then the internal sphincter normally tightens back up. So look at the third bullet point. The internal sphincter is normally contracted. It relaxes in response to rectal distension. You get transient relaxation with low volumes, five to 20 milliliters. If you have more than 60 milliliters in the rectum, you get persistent relaxation. The internal sphincter is your major structure for continence at rest. 
It is composed primarily of slow twitch fibers, which are very well suited to prolonged contraction and protection. Now, the other sphincter you have is the external anal sphincter. So it's the outer layer. You've got your internal sphincter, your external, so it's inner to outer. It is a striated muscle under voluntary control. It surrounds the internal anal sphincter. It's continuous with the pelvic floor muscle sling. The neat thing about the external sphincter is that it has both reflex components and voluntary components. So due to its reflex activity, it's tonically contracted. If you just walk up to it, you're gonna see that it's passively closed. But when you voluntarily contract, you literally double the resistance in the anal canal. So the external sphincter provides primary protection during periods of rectal distension. Your internal sphincter, continence at rest, your external sphincter, continence during rectal distension. The other thing that it does is it helps to maintain the anorectal junction because it's continuous with the pelvic floor muscle group. So let's talk a little bit about that. That's what you see on the bottom picture. Normally there's an anorectal angle that's relatively acute. It's created by the puborectalis muscle, part of the pelvic floor muscle group. So that 90 degree angle supports continence because it tends to keep stool in the rectum. It's hard for stool to get past that 90 degree curve and into the anal canal. So as long as your external sphincter is contracted, the pelvic floor muscles are contracted, this puborectalis is contracted, and that angle is maintained. When you relax the sphincters, relax the pelvic floor and bear down, that angle becomes much more oblique and it's easy for stool to pass from the rectum into the anal canal and out. Another thing that's very important to continence is normal rectal capacity and compliance. If your rectum functions normally, it will be able to accommodate small to moderate amounts of stool. It will provide temporary storage so that when you get this sudden urge to go, you tighten up to hold the stool in the rectum. You're kind of negotiating with your rectum. Hey, can you provide just some temporary storage for me just till I get to work, just till I can find a restroom? And under normal conditions, the rectum can easily do that. But if the rectum is very inflamed, if the rectum is fibrotic, scarred, low capacity, it is not going to be able to provide storage. It's going to contribute to incontinence. Now we'll come back to all of those structures and the role they play on continence. We'll come back to all of the processes involved in voluntary stool elimination and what goes wrong with involuntary stool elimination when we talk about fecal incontinence. One thing that's important to most people, definitely to people with ostomies, but actually of some interest to all of us is gas production. And there's three sources of intestinal gas. The first one, ingested air, what we swallow, that has very little impact as long as we have an intact intestinal tract. It's of minimal impact even for a patient who has a colostomy. But for a patient who has a small bowel stoma like an ileostomy, it means that if they drink through straws, if they chew gum, if they swallow a lot of air, they might have more gas. If you have an intact colon, ingested air has minimal impact on how much gas you produce every day. The second thing that contributes, but again has very little impact clinically, is metabolic processes. So what's involved? bacterial action on dietary fiber, specifically complex carbohydrates that are not broken down by enzymes. So this is fiber that, trans, that moves into the colon, okay? It's not broken down in the small bowel, it's not digested, it's residue. So it moves into the colon, pretty much intact. Bacterial action on that non-digestible carbohydrate 
causes gas production. 400 to 3,000 milliliters a day is considered normal. Now look at that number, I'm like, now how did they figure out 400 to 3,000 milliliters a day? Did they measure the average volume of a fart and then multiply it, have people count and multiply? Did they submerge people in water and see how much displacement there was? You just wonder how they figured out that number. But then the second thing you think is, what if you produce 3,000 milliliters a day? That is a lot. Of tremendous interest for patients who have ostomies, patients who have issues with continence, is the lag time between gas production and gas elimination. So it's typically four to six hours. So if I have a really hard time with gas management, let's say that I have some flatus incontinence, so my sphincter's not working quite right, and most of the time I can control stool, I can't always control gas, then I know that about four to six hours after I eat is when I'm gonna have the most gas. If I'm gonna go out with people for dinner, then I'm gonna be careful with what I eat at lunch, right? Because I don't wanna have a lot of gas when I'm out with my friends at dinner, especially if I don't have good control. So very helpful to let people know that lag time, it helps them plan. The last few things we're not gonna spend much time on this at all are the accessory organs. So of course we know that these organs are essential to life. They're just not directly impactful when we talk about um, continence. So liver, located in the right upper quadrant, you know this, two lobes, multiple hepatic lobules. And what is a hepatic lobule anyway? Well, you have these sinusoids that are lined with phagocytic cells and liver cells surround those. Phagocytic cells play a very important role because you know that blood from the GI tract passes through the liver for detoxification and for removal of bacteria and bacterial toxins before it goes back into the bloodstream. The other big thing the liver does, so it detoxifies blood from the GI tract. It also produces bile, which is essential to fat breakdown and absorption. So you have these little bile capillaries located between the liver cells. So the liver cells produce bile. The bile drains into these little capillaries. Those capillaries drain into hepatic ducts and eventually it drains into the common bile duct, which empties at the ampulla of water. Critical functions of the liver, some of them we've talked about. So metabolic support synthesis of your blood proteins, bile, and clotting factors. So we know that if we have somebody in liver failure, their production of blood proteins is very low. We know the liver stores vitamins and minerals and plays a critical role in detoxification. The gallbladder, which you see in green, of course, um, serves to concentrate and store the bile so long as it's there and has not been removed. The pancreas, located in the left upper quadrant, but extends into the midline. You know that the pancreatic duct empties into the duodenum at the ampulla of water. The pancreas has both exocrine and endocrine functions. So from an endocrine perspective, it produces insulin and glucagon to maintain glucose levels. From an exocrine perspective, it produces enzymatic fluids. So Pancreatic fluid actually has enzymes that help with carbohydrate digestion, protein digestion, and fat digestion. We also know that pancreatic fluid, so it's very enzyme rich and is very, very alkaline. It is potentially very damaging to the pancreas itself. So normally, the pancreatic enzymes are secreted in inactive form, and those enzymes are activated only once the fluid enters the duodenum. Blood supply to the GI tract. So there's two main vessels. The superior mesenteric artery supplies the entire small bowel, the right half of the colon. So here you see that in yellow. 
The inferior mesenteric artery supplies the left half of the colon and the proximal rectum. In terms of venous blood, most of the venous blood from the GI tract drains into the portal vein, which then empties into the liver for detoxification. Once it's been processed, it goes into the hepatic vein and back into the general circulation. That's important when we have patients with um, any kind of malignancy involving the GI tract because patterns of metastasis follow patterns of blood flow. So if I have a patient who has cancer of the colon, it's going to follow the patterns, metastatic disease is gonna follow the venous outflow patterns. And where's it gonna to go? To the liver. So when we're doing follow-up for someone who has colorectal cancer, we're monitoring liver function and we're typically doing liver scans because that's typically the first site of metastasis. So in summary, the upper GI tract, the mouth, the esophagus, the stomach, and the small bowel are jointly responsible for ingestion, digestion, and absorption of nutrients. The accessory organs contribute by facilitating intake of nutrients or breakdown of nutrients. The lower GI tract, the colon, rectum, and anal canal are primarily responsible for absorbing water and electrolytes, synthesizing protective compounds known as symbiotic compounds, and storing and eliminating waste. You'll hear us come back to a lot of the things we talked about when we talked about motility in the bowel and when we talked about structures critical to fecal continence and controlled elimination. We'll come back to that when we talk about fecal incontinence. Thank you.